I just started seeing overlap everywhere with this because at the end of the day, every model of education is about a- assessing someone's learning. Authentic assessment isn't a switch like it's authentic or it's not, but maybe it's more of a spectrum. The more authentic an assessment can be, the more valuable it is as far as your uh, evaluation. You're listening to Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. Authentic assessment is about designing assessments that allow students to demonstrate what they've learned with some kind of product or performance task. It acknowledges the difference between learning about something and being able to do something and moves the student beyond memorization and recall and into the area of application and creation. This type of assessment allows the student to complete the course with an artifact or piece of evidence of their learning for their portfolio. Authentic assessment is a key element of many other models or topics in curriculum development and instructional design, including UDL, QM, alignment, academic integrity, the TILT framework, and adult learning theory. We'll discuss all of this and more, including today's hot topic in this episode of IBD. Welcome to this episode of Instruction by Design, your podcast to the art of teaching. My name is Aaron Kraft from the Instructional Design Team at ASU's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. Joining me today are... Jeanette Senegal. Celia Katretiwa. And you may have noticed a new voice in the monologue. We are excited today to have on the show a special guest, Tim McKean. Tim, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm Tim McKean. I'm an instructional designer for the Herberger Institute Uh, online learning team. That's here at ASU. Yeah, Herberg Institute incorporates the School of Art, School of Arts, Media, and Engineering, the Design School, the School of Film, Dance, and Theater, and the School of Music. So we work with all those those departments. They did a good job building a team that all has some amount of technical skills with an arts background. So it's it's a fun team there. Yeah, definitely. Very talented team. I can attest to that. Fundamentally, Authentic assessment is the measurement of competency as demonstrated within a real-to-life authentic context. This is in contrast to a more traditional approach of, say, standardized multiple-choice questions. Tim, would you say that's fair? Yeah, that's a good good understanding of it. And I like your use of the term real life. I mean, that's a, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a term that we throw around a lot. You know, we're talking about real-world expect, expectations or, you know, preparing students for the real world. Yeah. Um, and so I, if that if that term authentic assessment is like too academic, then think of real world. You, know, real you world. could kind of substitute real world for authentic. What are some of your favorite examples of authentic assessments that you've come across in your career? As we mentioned before, I have a background in the arts. I was a music teacher for a long time in the middle school and high school levels. I actually got my start in teaching much earlier than that, teaching swimming lessons for, oh. for many years uh, through, uh, through college. And, and in those cases, you're, you're teaching someone to do something. And so the most authentic way for them to show you that they can do it is to, to do it, right? Or a kinesthetic. You, you're not yeah. going to have an exam to see if you can swim across the pool, right? You're, you're going to swim across There's the no pool. There's no multiple yeah. choice yeah. test for that. <laughs> like, is there... Pick A, B, or C. Do you use this stroke or this stroke? You know, how often should I breathe? You know, um, it's just you show me that you can do it. And this, this similar kind of thing in music. Um, and as I got into teaching it, it seems like so, so often... There's a disconnect between what it is we really want uh, the students to learn and then what it is we're asking them to do on an assessment. And, uh, and so, you know, you asked, so some of the best things you can do are, are demonstrations, you know, something that is natural to the student, like talking about what they know. If you, if you want to know what they know about a topic, have them tell you about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Or if you want to know if they can do something, have them do it. 
Yeah. Right. It's funny how this concept is so natural to say swimming lessons, Mm -hmm. right? I used to take uh, bass guitar lessons and my teacher would say, okay, show me the C scale that we've been practicing. Right. Right. However, the moment you step into an institute of learning, suddenly it seems like a lot of that can be forgotten as we uh, seem to rely on uh, standardized tests, multiple choice tests. And, and granted, not everything is a performance objective, right? Swimming, music, nursing, a lot of those things do have very specific performance objectives. You're learning how to give the injection or you're learning how to test for blood pressure. Mm-hmm. That's, those, are, those are performance activities. Right. But not every field has that kind of performance activity all the time. So I'm not saying, and I would never say that, that uh, multiple choice exams or exams in general are, are never appropriate. Uh, it's just comes down to how it aligns with what your intention for the lesson is. Celia, Jeanette, any examples you'd like to share? Well, going back to your talk about standardized testing, I think now more and more with the use of computer-based testing, especially in K-12, they're starting to move into more show me what you know, justify your answers where they are performance-based um, questions embedded into the usual, you know, multiple choice. Um, they might say type out a paragraph that explains the answer that you've given or type out your the math problem here or, you know, that type of assessment within. And you wouldn't be able to necessarily perform as far as showing, you know, the a design, but at least they're doing, you know, something with typing out or justifying answers to be able to show their thinking. So you're saying there's a trend towards like a hybridization of multiple choice with more authentic context assessment styles. Yeah, I think that's being brought into the mind of we need to look at authentic assessment as well, not just the multiple choice. And I think that's happening more and more across all levels of learning, I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to take it to a throwback as a learner, uh, as an undergraduate student. Um, you know, just sort of starting on my pathway with an information technology degree. And one of the courses I had to take early on was a foundational computer programming class. And I really had no exposure and really even a rudimentary understanding of the topic at the time. But I started to understand this idea of authenticity and assessment when on day one in the course, I was told the final product was a program, an actual operational program that somebody could interact with and use not a multiple choice exam where I had to pick out the correct syntax for code. I had to turn in a program. It was a little bit daunting, but it made the the motivation, the engagement a little bit higher as well because I could tangibly see what happened with the inputs, right? I could see the end product and, and that I think was really that's, exciting. I think that's a big part of, a big piece of value there that you, you just mentioned and that the motivation changed when you realized that the assessment was going to be of a certain type. Yep. Good point. Yeah. And that creates that meaningful learning. It's the, I know I'm going to use this and I'm going to have to show that I can actually use it, not just regurgitation of a bunch of facts Mm -hmm. and being able to memorize, oh, this is answer A, this is answer B. You actually had to show that you learned what it was that you were being taught and you had to practice it and perform it. And it was not that you, you learned it but that you were able to do something with it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the, another one of these connections. You know, we're talking about a lot of the, a lot of the time talking about educating students on what they're actually gaining in, in mm-hmm. school, right? A mm-hmm. lot of the 
credentialing things that Aaron and I are on a, a task force to work on the credentialing. It's all about letting students understand all the inherent skills that they're gaining along the way. And I think this has a, a piece of that because as you're doing something with your knowledge, you're going away knowing you have a skill. You're going away knowing you can do something, not just knowledge, but something that you can do. Sure. I knew well, I recognized you from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and this takes me back to the backwards design model mm -hmm. and why I always appreciated the backwards design model when building lessons was because you start out with the outcomes, but then the next step is to look at what it is that you want the students to do before you even look at any of the learning activities that you're going to um, do with the students. You have to look at how are they going to show me that they got this outcome mm -hmm. and that then is an easy way to build on authentic assessments right. to be able to show what it is they're learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and by doing that backwards design, or the, we mentioned earlier the, the QM alignment approach, you know, if you have your goals or your objectives set out first, then it's easy to ask, what can they do to show me that they've met that goal? And, mm -hmm. and that alignment of your objective or whatever word you like to put in place of objective goal reason you know there are some easier words we can use whatever is your goal for that you know then you decide what the assessment is first or second but and and it's easy to make sure that those two things attach that they connect well if i can go pedantic for a moment if you'll indulge me i think this sort of ties a lot of those pieces together uh is a meta-analysis research piece which tried to distill a lot of these ideas into a digestible kind of bottom line if you will and they identify that there are eight critical elements. So an authentic assessment should be challenging. Guess what? Writing a program from scratch, it's challenging, mm -hmm. right? But it's constructively challenging. Um, number two is the outcome of an authentic assessment should be in the form of a performance or a product, right? We mm -hmm. were just talking about that. Authentic assessment design should ensure transfer of knowledge. They're doing something with the work. Metacognition as a component of the authentic assessment. They're thinking about their learning. The importance of a requirement to ensure accuracy in assessment performance. So maybe that means that if you're looking at a fine arts performance, it's not just a subjective, great job. You, you looked great out there. Maybe there's some rubric or some other means to assess that. The role of the assessment environment and the tools used to deliver the assessment task are real life. And the importance of formally designing in opportunities to discuss and provide feedback along the way. Yeah, according to the research that I looked at, there is most definitely a rubric or some sort of a well-defined grading criteria involved. This isn't necessarily just willy-nilly. Do I, is it of the uh, teacher's opinion or the instructor's opinion that you perform the task well? But no, this is actually quite, I, I'll use the word legitimate, but there, there's quite a lot of effort put into making sure that rigorous criteria and standards are met. Precisely. It's not a black process. box. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the things that makes authentic assessment harder. And one of the reasons it's kind of avoided mm -hmm. in some places is because it is harder to, to grade, to assess. Mm -hmm. um, and you do really have to, the, the rubrics are a great way to address that because it's not, you don't end with a number as you would on an exam. Yeah. If, mm -hmm. if I'm looking at someone's performance, if I'm watching someone take blood pressure, if I'm watching someone swim across the pool, I don't end with a number, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I end with all these complex observations. 
And so having a rubric to give me guidelines of, did they place the cuff correctly? Did they have to adjust it? If they had to adjust it, did they adjust it correctly the first time? You know, all these things to kind of look for and then give numeric values or, or give some kind of grade value too. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think is one of the reasons why a lot of people don't come to an authentic assessment right away because they don't know how to evaluate it. I think the other thing is, you know, what about those um, areas that have certification exams that require them to know how to complete multiple choice, um, you know, questions versus performance? So in nursing, they kind of have to do both. They have to be able to perform, but they also have to be able to pass an NCLEX, which is the their ter national terminal licensure examination for nurses. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. But then you think about, so we know, you know, nursing, but trying to think about like, let's say the bar exam for law. I'm not sure, you know, do they have to show performance, any kind of performance assessments? I'm I don't sure. think so, but, but really but they're studying sure. for that bar exam. Right. Yeah. So how do you make sure that their assessments are authentic going through and, and, but they're still ready for the bar exam at the same time. Mm -hmm. But also think about what those assessments are measuring to some extent. Analytical reasoning, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Foundational knowledge, factual, you know, minutia that relates to their field that they can't be competent without knowing and demonstrating a mastery of. There's a place for that, right? It's mm -hmm. not just taking the blood pressures and administering an injection. It's understanding the background of the pharmacology for the agent that you're administering, right? There is that element. I think we're broaching on the, the question that a lot of instructional designers and educators have to eventually face is that do multiple choice questions uh, allow for deeper, uh, or how do you say, allow for higher order thinking skills to be assessed? Can a multiple choice question do more than just uh, assess one's um, understanding. Uh, understanding, yeah, understanding and recall. Is it you know? I, I don't want. I don't want to get into that today. <laughs> it's a whole different episode. Well, but, we've we've argued about this before. To be fair, have. in previous yeah. episodes, yeah. and the question of whether you can write multiple choice questions that get at those higher levels of learning, uh, mm -hmm. as defined in Bloom's taxonomy. And something Celia said actually um, inspired a thought, and it's that when you're taking a multiple choice exam, you're actually at least one time, maybe twice removed from the authentic context because you have to learn skills just to take a multiple choice exam. There's a whole mm -hmm. set of skills dedicated to taking examinations that are multiple choice, taking computer-based multiple choice examinations where you can't write down necessarily notes on paper or cross out answers. So you actually have this extra barrier there where an authentic assessment, it gets you closer to uh, which you would be doing in the real world. And therefore, there, it seems like you can make an argument that you're lowering some of the barriers involved. No, that's true. Anytime you do computer-based testing as a student, you also have to make sure you understand even the most basic skills of a computer, which is, you know, yeah. it's becoming more and more common now, but there still are students who wouldn't necessarily, like, they, they still have to get used to it. Stay tuned for our hot topics, by the way, tangentially related to this. That is true. Let's move on. Tim, I want to break down your monologue a little bit. Yeah. Do you see any overlap with adult learning theory and authentic assessment? As I was kind of preparing my thoughts and, and looking into this today for today, um, I just started seeing overlap everywhere with this. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, at, at the end of the day, every model of education is about a, a assessing someone's learning. Yeah. There has to be a component of assessing learning. 
and 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 maybe authentic assessment isn't a switch like it's authentic or it's not but maybe it's more of a spectrum yeah and that um the more authentic an assessment can be uh the more valuable it is as far as your uh evaluation of someone's skill but also as the, for the experience of the learner and one of the things that we see in the adult learning theories is that adults especially want to know the application of their learning. They That's want to, what I was going at here. They want to know, why am I in this course? Why am I learning the coefficient of friction for this element or whatever? And, and if the assessment of that is to calculate the distance between you when you hit your brakes and when you actually stop on wet concrete, dry concrete, hot concrete, and calculate all those differences, then that's an application of that knowledge. And they leave there knowing exactly why they had to learn that. Right. It makes it meaningful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the meaning's embedded. Yeah. Because it's, it's relevant. There's a, there's a personal relevance, likely. I mean, I, I imagine adult learners uh, usually, and this is the argument, that they, if they're getting educated in something, it's because they need it for, say, their job, or they need it to better their prospects in the future for in one way or the other. Right. Especially when you're getting into the graduate level courses, yeah. like bachelors, you know, they're still kind of figuring themselves out, trying to figure out where they want to be placed. But then when they come back for graduate level courses, master's degrees, um, doctoral, those are very, very focused. So they have to know and they have to be able to make those connections as to why that knowledge is needed for what they're going. Well, yeah. And so you're back to adult learning theory that they're building on existing knowledge structures, bringing in their own experiences mm -hmm. to connect to that relevancy effect as well. Mm -hmm. And there's some internal motivation there because people come back to school for a reason, right? Yeah. And, and they want to know that what the work they're doing is meeting that reason. Exactly. Exactly. So you also mentioned UDL, that's Universal Design for Learning, mm -hmm. which is a way of thinking about teaching and learning in order to design learning experiences in a, in a flexible way that meets the needs of various and individual learners, yeah. right? So where do you see the overlap between authentic assessment and UDL? UDL has a term that they use. Um, the, the term is multiple means. Yes. And so in, in UDL, uh, you want to design your lesson so that there's multiple means of accessing the content. Um, and the, one of the multiple means, and I'm going to forget all three of them, but one of the multiple means is multiple means of ex expressing their learning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if, if you have something that is more authentic, that is, even if it's choose one of these ways to show me that you've learned, you can write a story, you can make a presentation, you could write a, uh, create a video. You know, if you have some options there and some flexibility so that they're creating something and, and it's up to them to kind of sometimes decide what, what can I do that shows I've learned this and, and they can choose the one that kind of works best for them. I think that flexibility can, can address that idea of multiple means of expression. Jeanette or Celia, do you happen to remember the episode where we talked about UDL, I think? Have we reached a critical threshold, um, compatriots, where we can't remember which episode we've yeah, previously right. <laughs> spoken about a topic? Okay, yeah, we have an episode on UDL. We'll put the link in the show notes for you as well. Um, okay, so I want to move on to another acronym that you mentioned, and that is TILT. TILT is an award-winning national educational development and research project that helps faculty to implement a transparent teaching framework that promotes college students' success. So, Tim, where do you see the overlap between authentic assessment and, and TILT? Again, it's, it, there's a lot of overlap there, but with TILT, the, the whole TILT framework is about assessment design. So, right off, we're, we're, we're really looking at a lot of overlap. Um, but 
in the tilt framework for for assessment design you're you're telling students several different things about what they're doing right you're telling students why they're doing it you're telling them what to do and you're and how to do it i think if, if those were the, mm-hmm. the right components and and having that why there is is a part of you know again if you're doing something with your knowledge if you're doing something with the the knowledge or a skill that you've gained in the lesson or in in the learning experience then it's very clear why you're doing it right so the way i interpreted it was that typical tests are generally unknown to the student in advance they don't know what questions are going to be on the test if it's a multiple choice test for example they just know maybe the general objectives or concepts that'll be covered and they hope they study the right area. Whereas with authentic assessment, you know exactly what you'll be doing. If you're a mechanic, you know you'll have to go in to the garage and perform a set of tasks. Nothing's hidden. It's very transparent. And thus, Mm -hmm. the link there with the tilt framework. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and we also have this dynamic in in education where we have formative and summative assessments, right? Mm -hmm. And and so often when we think of assessment, we just think of that summative assessment. We think of that exam. We think of that exam paper or doctoral dissertation. You know, those big benchmark things. Right. and, and But the formative side is just as, if not more important, uh, with the idea that the formative assessment is a chance for you to try doing something in a safe environment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I once heard a speaker talk about a fail-safe environment. And, and often we think of that term fail-safe to mean that there are things in place that keep you from failing. And he, he flipped it around saying, this is a place where it's safe to fail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like in, this, in our classroom, this is where we can practice something. And if you fail, it's okay because you're going to learn from it and do it again. And, and I think that has a lot to do with those when, you're, when your assessment and, your, and, your, and especially your formative assessments are these authentic things where you're actually trying to do something, then you're doing something in the safe place of an of a educational environment rather than just here's all this knowledge, now go out into the world and try it for the first time. That's not safe. We've seen this a lot in the health profession. So simulation, being uh-huh. that fail-safe mm-hmm. environment yeah. where... It's, you know, to an extent encouraged for them to make mistakes so that they can absolutely learn from them so that they don't go out into their health profession and Mm -hmm. harm a patient, a real life patient. If it's a mannequin, they're still doing some of that true, authentic, interactive skill work, but the patient's not going to die. So that's a really important part of the process for them. And I think quite um, well aligned this idea of transparency, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. And the implicit skills behind it. So mm-hmm. even with a, you know, a nursing student writing a paper, those communication skills, those analytical reasoning skills, TILT provides a mechanism to codify why they're doing a paper, even though really their job is going to be caring, right? Right. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the idea of practice, you know, coming from an arts background or a sports background or different things. That idea of practice is just second nature, right? You spend a lot of time practicing and a small amount of time performing. And, but when we get into more academic type things, we tend to lose that idea of practice. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's still just as important in, in any class, whether it's a history class or writing class, you know, you need to practice applying knowledge. Spoken like a true musician. That's right. 
Well, and going back to your um, experience with the computer programming assessment that you had to do or authentic assessment, mm-hmm. I'm sure that I would assume that everything was scaffolded. So you were able to also show your growth along the way Absolutely. to be able to get to that complete end product. And that's one of the nice things about authentic assessments is that you are able to see growth if it's scaffolded, you know. It's right, very right. important. It's not just the product or the final outcome. It's the process that mm-hmm. can be captured as well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about authentic assessment and academic integrity. How does authentic assessment encourage academic integrity? There are a couple different aspects of academic integrity. Students, students cheat when um, they're just not bought in enough to the idea that what they're doing is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and students cheat when it's more convenient, you know, for whatever reason. So the, the stakes are, if the stakes are too high and the value is too low, there's, there's some, some measures there that, that the mm-hmm. research shows about cheating. One of the things that, that um, authentic assessment and, and alignment bring to that picture is, first of all, if they're bought in because they understand why they're doing it and they're understanding the value that they're gaining, then they're going to be less likely to cheat. There's, they're not going to go buy a project from somewhere else um, or use a project that their roommate did last year or something right. like that. Um, but there's also this component of kind of going back to the UDL and the flexibility and the, and the multiple means. If I'm learning how to write a story, then giving me a prompt that tells me to write a specific story is something I can go find but giving me a prompt to write a story that's personal to my life is something I can't go find. No one else has written about my life yet. Sure. Um, or if I'm making a video interviewing someone uh, about a certain historic event, then I'm going to be on the video making, you know, interviewing them. I can't fake that. I can't just go buy someone else's video or find somebody else's video. Right. Um, and so it, it's that creative process of this product that I'm making is specific to me. I can't go find it somewhere else. I'm not going to find it on Course Hero. Right, in the know? context for that course or that yeah. mm-hmm. project assignment, whatever, may be very specific. Mm-hmm. Even though you provide the multiple means of expression and opportunity, that performative artifact piece. I think because you, you still that, have specific yeah, objectives right that you're looking for. And you still becomes, have specific elements in your rubric that you're scoring on. Yeah, mm-hmm. it becomes very individualized there. Even if you were to take someone else's work from, let's say, the previous semester it would still be really hard to pass it off as your own. I think it would take a lot more effort to cheat on an authentic assessment than it would. Right. No, exactly. And even if you cheat by having someone tell you what you have to do, you still have to memorize and perform it, which means you're doing it. Yeah. Even if you (laughs) took their idea and then Mm -hmm. went and made your own. You're still doing still, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're still exactly. applying, which is mm-hmm. you're getting to the higher order thinking. And then another right. component to that, too, is often when we have these kind of creative projects, I always recommend that students turn them in in, in sequence. Uh, you mentioned scaffolding. Mm-hmm. You know, submit your proposal for feedback. Submit your draft for feedback. Submit your script for feedback. Um, and then when you're doing it that way, not only are you helping them succeed by giving them feedback on their ideas and giving mm-hmm. them feedback on their draft or their script, you're also, again, it's, you're not just going and, and buying a project from somewhere else. This because, isn't a one and done kind of thing. This yeah. is an iterative assessment. And again, in a supported environment. So it's, you're taking that pressure, you're, you're, you're changing those formulas of whether it's high stakes and low stakes, whether it's, you know, um, 
high value or low value, yeah. you're, you're lowering the stakes by supporting the creative process and raising the value by having it be personal to them. Last question. And I am always biased to online learning. So my last question is about can online learning environments accommodate authentic assessments? I have my opinion, but I'm curious about yours. I thought we were talking about online learning this whole time. Okay. I'm a big fan of online learning. Um, I really, uh, one of the things that I try to embody in my work is the idea that online should never be seen as a second tier of education. Right. Um, in fact, I think we're getting to a place real soon or, or there where online learning can be better, more effective and more efficient than traditional on-ground face-to-face classes because of the because of the the mediums of of time shifting and and different things like that it's a charged statement we might have to follow up with you someday yeah yeah we'll see what what comments we get but uh, um absolutely the answer is yes um and it just it just requires some creativity and how the student is going to demonstrate to you you know uh, rather than being there to demonstrate they would they, they will have to create something that they can upload that demonstrates their their ability. So whether they're creating a video or they're creating a document, um, right? Whether they're taking photos of something, you know, there are a lot of ways to show. And and video and photos are getting so much easier now. Uh, we can jump on a Zoom call, even if you wanted to be real authentic and and be in real time and and talk about trying to cut down um, academic integrity. Jump on a Zoom call and just have a five minute conversation with me about what you learned from this thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, that's the thing, the accessibility to all these different tools that can help us to be able to perform these authentic assessments online without actu- actually having to be face to face. You mentioned like Zoom conference calls. Mm-hmm. A majority of cell phones now have capabilities of being able to record video, take pictures and quickly upload. Mm-hmm. And, you know, online learning involves learning management systems that have the ability to upload all of those files. So it's a lot easier now to be able to do that um, and share authentic assessments online. Mm-hmm. I just had a flashback in my head to like gangster movies where you have to when you have a an abduction, you have to show the headline of the day and the yeah. proof of life uh-huh. <laughs> photo. Um, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, What's the modern day version right. of that? Like a snap shot USA Today yeah. screenshot. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of those like respondents and stuff make you hold up your ID before you take an exam. Right, right. Yeah. that is true. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a good connection too, because I was going to say, I think it depends. Not that authentic assessment can't be conducted in an online course environment. I absolutely agree. But, or and the hurdles for scalability might be a bit higher. So if you do have those additional considerations for how you design a course, how you measure the objectives, you may be able to only accomplish that with 30 students, a course, not 100 students, a course. It becomes a question of inputs versus outputs. So Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely something to be aware of. Yeah, I held back from asking the pros and cons, but I think one of the obvious issues with authentic assessment is if you have a large enrollment course 
that's going to be really hard to watch, say, 150 students perform something and then give right. them critical. I've made that mistake before. Yeah, oh, <laughs> yeah. That- yeah. I had, a, I had all the students make a, a a video, and then you you know if you if you don't give like a real strict time restriction on your video, they make like a 15, and you got all these students. You got to watch 15 minute videos for everybody. 15 adds up fast. You know? Absolutely. But does that try. mean yeah. then that even, you know, a large lecture face-to-face class couldn't do authentic assessments either? Or I mean, it's the same thing. It is the same thing. Whether Stay it's online or not. Part two. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, but I think there's lots of ways to address that. And, and uh, one of them is having, again, going to the alignment thing is being very clear about what it is you're looking for and making sure that all the students know what, you know, one of the things I found, I was once teaching a video production for educators course. This is our graduate students. And, and after a while, you realize if you can make a two minute video that has all these elements, you can make a two hour video that has the same elements. The, yep. the length is not what I'm grading on. It's mm-hmm. the, yeah. that you know how to frame, that you know how to light, that you know how to choose the right shots. And then so all of a sudden the assignment became make a two minute video. And like, that was lots nicer to grade then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember, so being really clear about those elements. Mm-hmm. And really focusing on, on what's important. I had a faculty that had her students uh, basically record vines as a, as a group project. You, do you remember vines? You're showing mm-hmm. your age. I Aaron. know, I know. <laughs> it, but yeah, it was like seven seconds at most, I think. And that was her final project was you have to give me your, uh, you know, your final product as a project in seven seconds. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can you think, here's a challenge. Can you think of anything, any topic or profession that you could not assess authentically online something you'd have to be there in person for okay okay jet pilot simulator but if they took us if they took a 360 gopro in with them and did the flight then an evaluator could watch that video know that they did all the checklist that they pushed all the right levers and buttons and the fact that they survived and submitted the video tells a lot could you do that with cpr though (laughs) Do they have online CPR oh, classes? I go. mean, I've it's done. An interesting c- question. I've, I've been certified for CPR, and I don't know that I could do that online and be able to feel confident that I could save a life. Mm-hmm. I would have to do a bit of research, but at one point, I remember reading about a simulation company that was developing something that included things like eye tracking, time lapse, so that they were presented with a digital patient, if you will, and they had to sort of checklist the steps that you would go through. Now, can you measure... You can't measure pressure. Pressure. Exactly. Exactly. So maybe there's some dimensions. You're holding an infant in your hand. But how is your instructor measuring your pressure in real life? By being able to see like the the pressure of the body. Yep. So if you have a video that can watch and show what you're doing, that's exactly the same input that that instructor is getting when they're watching you in real life. There might be some nuances there. I don't know. Perhaps? You still have to know the feel of the body and exactly where you're pressing, right. depending on the body. But I'm talking about what the evaluator is looking at. They're not feeling your pressure. They're just yeah. watching you. But as a learner, mm-hmm. so, I so don't that's the know challenge. if so I, that's would, not the assessment. I would it's the- <laughs> want to go out and try to save a life mm-hmm. so <laughs> learning online. Pref- as a learner, you would prefer to do no, that person. If, yes. the company, if the company sent you the dummy... See, but you still need something else. Yeah, with so that it. pressure, it that, that be, real yeah. world. So you would still need another tool. Equipment. Does anyone yeah, know yeah. if pumping on a dummy is anything like pumping on a real person? 
Yes, it's very, very close. I yeah. think they make it pretty similar. I think they similar. have validation. I mean, we all assume that, but it, I yeah. never actually mm-hmm. had to put it into practice. And I even better, I think, now. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they do. They Great do. questions, though. Really yeah. good okay, questions. Yeah. so <laughs> to answer then, how oh, about yeah. uh, safe alliteration, safe, survivable seafloor soil sampling? Could you assess <laughs> that technique what? online? Underwater basket weaving? Exactly. <laughs> So I'm going to say the the blanket answer is always yes. That's tough. Because (laughs) so (laughs) I'm going to say the blanket answer is always yes, because what what does an instructor do to to again, that same question, what does the instructor do to assess you in in person? They just watch or they ask you a question or they look at the product you made. Mm -hmm. We can do all of those things online. I can look at your product. I can watch you either recorded or in real time. If it's you just, don't drown, that's also pretty, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> pretty good. Because you know, we're limited. I always just go back to that. What does the instructor do in, in your on-ground class? Well, let's just do that same thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're watching, you're listening, you're giving verbal feedback. Essentially, that's what teaching is. I've always been a, a firm believer in the efficacy of online education. So I, I do agree that there has to be a way that we can... Uh, increase the fidelity of the experience whether it be bringing in uh high resolution uh, gopro cameras attached to your helmet mm-hmm. you know in, in the simulated uh, mm-hmm. jet cockpit mm-hmm. or, or whatever the, or maybe yeah you get sent a dummy that has uh pressure sensor yeah well, i was gonna say they probably have new dummies that have the sensors right in it that I can just send do. feedback straight well, back to the instructor yeah. so and i re- bet you mm-hmm. soon we'll have an app you like put your smartphone on a pillow and then practice on it and it'll tell you if you're pressing hard enough and at the right speed. Yeah. I still would not want to try saving a life after that. <laughs> this is just like my phone. Hold yeah. on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Go back to me. Staying alive. Stay no, alive. there's going to be a new yeah. thing. You take out your phone alive. and you Staying put it on their alive. chest while you do it and it oh, gives you okay. feedback right on there. The- that would be that's you. What you if you can't afford the dummy? We'll you get just rich find out. somebody. Who <laughs> I got it. I need my phone to be like inexpensive. Can you lay down here so I can practice? Yeah. I got it. Inexpensive dye packs like they use for theft prevention oh, in a material yeah. that's so if you approximately <laughs> the uh, breaking point so of if you whatever too hard, the threshold is. Oh, and man. then you have to video it. And if you end up um, covered in ink, you, yeah. you fail. Yeah. How about that? There you go. You have to buy your shirt. There you go. Or Heimlich. What if you're having to do the Heimlich? How do you do that? How do you show that? <laughs> okay, rabbit hole. All right, I remember. Uh, Sorry. Wow. Well, so many, so many questions now to be answered. But uh, I want to thank Tim for uh, guiding us through authentic assessment. Glad to be here. And let's move on to hot topics. Hot topics. All right. Today's hot topic comes to us from Jeanette. Why? Thank you, Aaron. All right, so today we're going to talk about an article from Slate.com titled Being Bad at the Internet Shouldn't Disqualify Job Candidates by Jane C. Hugh. And I'll be honest, the reason this caught my attention at all was the subtitle because it says why you shouldn't discount applicants who use Comic Sans in their professional emails. And it made me laugh, literally laugh out loud because I remember being at a conference a couple years ago and literally had this conversation on Twitter about leaving a presentation because the materials were in Comic Sans font Mm -hmm. and thinking through the mindset and the sort of ego and privilege and all of that, that that might suggest. Um, 
But seriously, as I read through this, it's kind of about workforce development and what we in our nerdy academic circles speak to a little bit as the hidden curriculum Mm. or kind of implicit bias in educational environments where we expect basic um, standards of communication fluency, technology fluency. And so to me, this kind of challenged this idea that everybody is at least at the same basic starting place. And if they're not, does it matter? Can they still be completely capable, wonderful employees for the type of job that they're applying for, even if they submit a resume in Comic Sans? My initial take, you're talking about culture. You're talking about institutional culture, company culture, and every culture is different and unique. I would say, is this a skill that they can be taught? For example, if you're an instructional designer in a higher education institute, you probably need to understand how to say things gently, like if you're passing on, um, say, gentle criticism, constructive criticism over to faculty, you have to know how to word that in a way where it's not uh, offensive, at least outright offensive, right? So can this be taught? If they don't have that coming on board, can it be taught and are they willing to learn it? Now, if you are a marketing person, a communications person, and you don't know how to communicate via text, right. that's a huge problem. So in that case, I would say, no, don't hire them. But on the other hand, if it's, if it's not the most essential skill and it can be taught and they're willing to learn it, I'd give them leeway. That's a perfect uh, point to make because one of the examples that they used in the article was actually from sort of this academic realm where they discussed students who weren't really um, understanding how to write a professional email to their instructors oh, yeah. and to kind of get the right tone, if you will, to get the desired outcome, perhaps a waiver into a class that was full. And the point that they made in the article is that how would they learn? How would they go out and see examples of well-written professional emails to instructors? Mm-hmm. That implicit understanding that all of our learners are going to walk in and know how to write a decent email. Is it safe to fail? Is well, it- I thought that's where like the business courses come in from like high school or like the free enterprise courses, you know, that type of stuff where they're getting some of those skills to know how to do this. The fact that the article exists really speaks to the what you guys have talked about digital literacy before. Just some of those things that, like you said, are expected to Mm -hmm. know how to do. I know a teacher that has an assignment in her course uh, that teaches the students how to email her. If you're emailing Mm me, you go like this. I'm Tim, I'm from your third period class. I have this question. Introduce yourself, give context, then state your question. You know, and and the fact that she has learned over her career that I have to teach them how to communicate with me in an efficient way so that I don't have to respond back. What class are you in? What, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it goes back to that thing that anything we want our students to know, we should teach them. Uh, Obviously, this isn't a, a student teacher kind of relationship, but there is that. Again, that, that uh, illustration of, of why some of those digital competencies, di- digital literacies uh, are so important because there is that kind of that, that kind important. of subconscious evaluation that goes on immediately. But do we assume that everybody should be at a certain level by a certain age or a certain point in their career? I, I, don't, I think that's a bit of a stretch personally. Mm-hmm. I think well, we get so entrenched in our norms that we live with on a daily basis in our profession or, you know, people that we talk to, whatever. And this is kind of another way to think about when and how should you challenge your assumptions about those norms in your industry or what have you. Let me bring it back to the idea of assessment. 
And, and, you know, because a, an interview, a job filtering process really is an assessment. You're assessing whether they are going to be the right fit for your, for your opening. Right. Um, and I know that when I've served on a hiring committee uh, at a college before, they were very clear about here's the rubric and here are the things that you're allowed to score people on. And here are the things. And they were very clear about what things you couldn't take into your consideration and, and what things you should. Now, obviously, there's there's like I said, there's those subconscious kind of things of well, I just didn't like how I dressed or whatever. But um, but none of those ever got scored into the score sheet that we then passed on to the, to the hiring committee or to the person that made the final decision. And that's my point. That's a cultural opinion. That's a cultural viewpoint. The way you're dressed doesn't resonate with the way we dress here. But is that something that can easily be changed? Why discount a perfectly good candidate? For something that can easily be changed if as long as they're willing to mm-hmm. go with it. And I think that's why that rubric is important. The hiring rubric or a grading rubric. What are the things that are actually important to making this decision? Is the is what their resume looks like? I mean, the resume, talking about authentic to contrived spectrum, the resume is the most contrived thing everyone ever made. Like, give me one paper that describes you professionally. That you know, that's <laughs> okay. So your, your, that, res- sure. your resume is one of the least authentic things there is. Um, and so as long as it goes just down to that, building the rubric appropriately in alignment with the goals of the position. Well, and so lots of research out there, even on simple things like whether or not those rubrics that you mentioned in an interview or a hiring process should redact names and addresses, because again, you might begin to form a picture or an assumption about socioeconomic class, Mm -hmm. gender, um, beyond the things that you're really supposed to be scoring using that rubric or those mm-hmm. objective criteria before they ever have an opportunity to really present themselves as a good candidate. Right. I just watched somebody um, fill out an application on a computer provided by the place. So I was actually at a family dollar and they have a little kiosk they for have the people. Kiosks, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it at Walmart and other places too, but this one was most recent. And I thought, okay, so now they're even making it more accessible to be able to complete these online applications and they'll it's funny i i never quite understand they want it online but i've watched you know several um youth come into the workforce and they have to also have their paper copy of the resume Mm -hmm. so not only are they trying to upload this resume so that they have it online but they also have to bring in this paper copy and one of the things that the article talks about is the social signaling and how the maybe the ones who are my age or older or, you know, around my age, we were taught to have really nice resume paper. Yeah. You know, and I still have some of that really nice resume <laughs> paper that I'm like, what am I ever going to do with this? <laughs> but I've now taught my children how to use that same paper um, to do stuff with. But, you know, that's kind of going away because now it becomes like, why am I taking in this paper copy when I've already uploaded this, you know, document? for them to view right so you, you you submit your resume and then they make you go into their portal and retype in all that information again yes which i've seen and it strips all the design in a resume all the formatting oh, <laughs> yes God, um, so then it's yeah it's extra frustrating but well, <laughs> how about those systems that have sort of a bottleneck in the beginning you have to input an email address this article points out what if you don't have an operational email account or you, you exactly. can't check it regularly i thought that mm-hmm. was pretty interesting because they make the point that in order to submit the application, you need an email address. Mm-hmm. In order to get a Gmail address, you have to have a phone number right. now. 
yes, as a right. second mm-hmm. as a second security thing. It's that like, catch. So now you've got a a bar that only you can apply if you have a cell phone or if you have a phone. And Which, I, I, mean, I don't think that was their intention at all. Because you do need to have some way of contacting you, which. A lot of places who are trying yeah. to help Email. people get on their feet, they do provide like, you know, homeless shelters that have resources to help people get jobs. They do have numbers that they'll help them, you know, mm-hmm. use so that they can um, have an employer contact through that number. They have, you know, those types of resources. But it's true. You do have to have those pieces in order to even get seen by a. Now, at the same time, employer. it does make sense because if they want to hire you. How are they going to get in touch with you if mm-hmm. you don't have any email or phone? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously there's some contact needs there to start with. But there are some fundamental assumptions being made, with, you know, referencing what I said earlier about the level mm-hmm. of digital literacy going on here. Maybe, maybe you don't like smartphones. Maybe you don't feel like spending $800 on a smartphone and then $40 a month for, or $50 a month for a plan for yourself. You just need something basic. You're making a lot of assumptions about what people are coming in with in terms of, you know, and also their uh, socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. There are assumptions mm-hmm. being made there. And then digital literacy is tied to socioeconomic status. So I would, this is a tricky one. I'd be careful mm-hmm. about the kind of assumptions we make. But then again, if it's a marketing position and you don't know how to write an email, hey, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and that's a big thing. You know, what exactly are they going into? What kind of job, what kind of field are they going into? Yeah, context matters. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground today. And I want to thank Tim McCain for everything. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Yay, Tim. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to host you here. And uh, I'd like to thank Celia Kuchwaitiwa and Jeanette Senecal for their awesome oration over authentic assessments. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. Feel free to tweet us with your favorite examples of authentic assessment or, you know, just say hi. We love hearing from our listeners. You can reach us on Twitter at IBD underscore podcast. That is IBD as an instruction by design underscore podcast. Or you can email us at instruction by design at ASU.edu. To find previous episodes, please visit our website at links.asu.edu slash IBD underscore podcast. This podcast was produced by Arizona State University's Edson College of Nursing and Health Innovation. All right, today's hot topic comes to us from Jeanette. Thanks, Aaron. So um, this... <laughs> Sorry. So, that was so, 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 so Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Aaron. <laughs>